that we join with the song that Lord just sang. We ask that you would give us this time. You have given us this time. We pray that this prayer give me Jesus would be the song in our life. Regardless of where we are today, regardless of what we were thinking about in the context when we walked in, that's what we need today. We don't need just a quick pick-me-up. We don't need a funny story. We don't need a principle that will change our lives. We need this. So we ask you. And we also ask for the nations because the nations don't have They're far from having people. So while our song is and our prayer is given to you, our offspring, we also sing and we also pray. Lord, give us the nation. Warriors. Warriors. Take our time for this. 30 minutes or so and Well, it's good to be back with you today. Uh, last week, on Saturday night, we made it back from Houston just in time for me to uh, have the 24 hour seminar. Those are awesome. And you're really glad that I'm not here. But I want to thank particularly Mike for, for preaching last week. I haven't had a chance to listen to that, but I did get to interact with him as he was preparing, and I, I know that that was a really neat, neat time together. And I want to thank James for uh, covering for me and pulling all of that together while I was uh, out sick. Uh, this week was kind of an interesting week for me. We had uh, Friday, we had a funeral service uh, here. I worked with the mother passed away about a week ago. So we had a funeral service for her, and it was just, it was a Worshipful, worshipful celebration of life. Well, someone here needs love. So it was really neat. It really blessed my heart to see all of our folks kind of come together and put that, put that on. And, and one of the things that, that really uh, tried to make a point is Dr. Jay and Dr. Bill and Red and each person who helped put that together. But I really see in a moment like that when you're, when you're doing a funeral service. That is real ministry. Not clicking slides, it's not turning knobs, it's not playing the piano. Ultimately, that is loving our brothers and sisters and loving God every day we have. And honestly, that's what we do when we come here. That's why we're here. We don't gather here. I mean, we're here to worship God, we're here to exalt Christ. We don't come here to check a box and warm the seat that we sit in for a few minutes. We come here because this is our opportunity to be right in the red hot center of loving God and loving God. So it was, it was just a good reminder for me. But uh, this morning we are picking up in week six of our Missio Dei sermon series. Missio Dei is the Latin phrase for mission of God. We've been talking about God's mission. We've been talking specifically about the God that has a mission, so we've been talking about who he is, and then we've been talking about his mission, his purpose for the world, what the story that he is writing with all of history is now, and how we play our part in it. I want to give a quick 
recap of where we've been. We're, we're, the first five weeks were on the Old Testament. Today we begin five more weeks on the New Testament. So in case you weren't here for some of those weeks, let me briefly give you a recap. Week one, we looked at Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and Galatians 3, 6 through 8. And here's what we learned. God is the missionary God who calls, blesses, and sends his people so that they will be a blessing to others in order that all people may worship them. Okay? Then the second week, we looked at 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17, especially verses 5 through 16, and we learned this that God. I'm sorry, Jesus is the royal son of David who has received God's kingdom. He will rule and reign forever, and he is worthy of our complete worship and obedience. Okay? Week 3, Psalm 67, we learned that God blesses us with grace, provision, and himself so that we will enjoy him, thank him, and steward and seek his blessings for the salvation of all nations. So God blesses us so that the nations will be saved. That's the purpose for our blessing. Part four, week four, we looked at Isaiah 42, one through nine, and we learned that the Lord's servant, Jesus, will accomplish God's mission to bring justice to the earth by reconciling the nations to the Lord God. And then the last uh, week that we were in, week five, a couple weeks back, we looked at Ezekiel 36, 16 to 38, and we learned this. That God judges and pours out his wrath for sin, but reconciles, transforms, and blesses his people, not for them, but for the sake of his holy name among the nations. So I want two things to be crystal clear before we continue to see. Number one, this is God's mission. The story of history is about God. It's not about his people. It's not about the nations. It is about God. Okay? God's mission. But number two, everything God created and everything that he does and he is doing throughout this time is done so that people from all over the world, all nations, might come to know the Lord is rock solid. We can take those to the bank. Those are stakes that you can put in the ground and build your life upon. Those are crystal clear. Okay? So now, I want to kind of talk through, you know, we'll, we'll get to our text in a little bit, but before we do, I want to share a little bit with you. Uh, back when I was in high school, like most juniors or seniors, I think this was back in my senior year, I had my whole life mapped out. Anybody else do that when you were like 18? Like you mapped out your life, you had it all figured out. Like I knew, I knew. I didn't just think, I knew that I was going to graduate from high school. I knew that I was going to go to the University of Texas at Austin, straight out of high school. I knew that as soon as I got to UT that fall, I was going to meet the most amazing, godly, beautiful, perfect girl, and she was going to fall in love with me overnight, and we were going to date for four years. We were going to graduate on Friday, we were going to get married on a Saturday, and I was going to start working my dream job. Or go to grad school or whatever. I had a couple of you know, options in this whole plan that I laid out for myself. And then, you know, we'd probably get a dog. I'd start my career at some point at the time. I wanted to be a counselor, a licensed professional counselor. If you know me, I'm a much better talker than listening to that. I'm terrible. <laughs> and then 
After that, I figured a couple years later, me and my wife would start our family, be well on our way to 2.1 kids, live our American dream, and then I don't know why I remember this, but I remember distinctly being a senior in high school. And for some class that I was in, we kind of had to like talk about some dreams and plans for our life. And I don't know why, this is so stupid, but like my dream was that one day I was going to be so successful that I had a Lexus BS 400. I don't know what it was about that car. I don't know what it was about that that was so big a deal for me. But I still remember that. And that's 2000, so 14 years ago. What's that? Could have picked a better one while I said Exactly. But here's the deal. I think I mapped out my life like that because I was afraid of you. I think I was anxious about what I didn't know, and so I had to fill in all the gaps. Anxiety. Something we all feel with. Fear to kind of, you know, best friend. We deal with anxiety and fear. And I think it's because we don't like the unknown, and so we want to know what will happen. You know, we deal with this stuff because we want to know what's going to happen. Now, here's the problem. Our fascination and our focus on the future absolutely robbed us of joy and productivity, a, a, a life well-lived in the present. <laughs> you ever met anybody who, like, you just cannot convince them to stop planning and looking down the road like they never, ever, ever live in a moment? Maybe, maybe that's you. We've gone, gone through David's personal But when we get so wrapped up with what will be or might be, what is, is completely empty of any potential. And so, wouldn't it be great if Jesus has given us a way to get off of the train of anxiety, to get out of this trap of thinking that we've got to have it all figured out? Wouldn't it be helpful if we had a perspective that could ease our worry? We have Today, as we look at Matthew 24, 1 through 14, we're going to see some words that can help us kind of have a framework on which to hang some of our anxieties and fears so that we can kind of get our minds and our hearts off of the future, off of what's unknown, and kind of refocus on today and what it is that we can know and what we're called to So today the question I want to wrestle with is, what is going to happen between Christ's ascension, so whenever he, in Acts 1, said, listen, I'm leaving, you're going to be my witnesses throughout Judea, Samaria, and until the ends of the earth, and then he went up into heaven. So what's going to happen between that moment and when Christ comes back? According to the text, what will happen in this part of history? And secondly, how is God inviting us into this chapter of What's going to happen between Christ's ascension and his return, and how God invited us into this chapter of his story. So turn with me to Matthew 24. We're going to do things a little differently today. Rather than read it all, we're going to kind of walk through it a little bit at a time so you can just stay seated. Um, before, before we get into that, I just remembered I've got to make one more announcement. So hold your place there in Matthew 24. Um, 
this Friday night, we have our Halloween outreach today. You should have gotten a separate handout in your bulletin. You don't need to read that right now. Just take that and read that later. But I want to just provide a couple of pieces of information. The reason why we are doing this, everybody, please listen up and look at me for a second. The reason why we are doing this is not to just fellowship and have a good time with our still night. The purpose of this event, the entire reason we are doing this, is so that we can rub shoulders and get to know people. Okay? So some of you, you may be planning to already go do something else, maybe somebody down the street or one of your Christian buddies is having a party. I would ask you to seriously consider and pray about joining us for this so that the nations might come to know you. We have neighbors all around us who do not know him, and this is a great opportunity for us to just begin a conversation and a, and a relationship with them. And so that's the purpose behind this. This is not just a, a Halloween party. This is not just a go sum it up with your skill and friends. This is just be intentional about getting to know some folks in our neighborhood. So the second thing I want to point out is down below you're going to see four locations. I'm going to encourage you to find the one that is closest to you and plan to attend that. And bring some candy, email the, the host there, asking them what you can bring to help make that event happen. And here's the thing. If you don't know the location that's closest to your address, you probably will based on the parts of town. Plug them into Google Maps and just figure out which one's closest to you. And the reason why I'm asking you to pick the one that's closest to you rather than the one where your best friend has still been attending is because it makes no sense if you live in Oak Cliff to go to the one in Plano and get to know people in Plano that you've never seen. It makes a lot more sense for you to get to know some Oak Cliff people that you might see at the grocery store and you might be able to build a relationship with. Okay? So that's the vision, that's the purpose of the plan. Like that, I invite you to be a part of that with us this Friday night. It's going to be a great time together. So let's turn back to Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, verse 1, we're going to read the, the first couple of verses. This is what it says. Jesus left the temple and was going away when the disciples, his disciples, came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left upon here one, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So, in the passage right before this, at the end of chapter 23, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. We're not going to read all the other verses, but that's part where he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wish to, to uh, Say it. Oh, I wish to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Okay, so in Matthew's Gospel, he presents Jesus as the coming Messiah to the Jews. And as you look at Matthew's Gospel, what happens is the Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah. They say, You are not. You are not who you claim to be. And so here is a pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry. At the end of chapter 23, he's lamenting the fact that they have rejected him as their king and Messiah. And now in verse 24, he is denouncing the temple because they have rejected him. Okay? So, when we read in verse 1 that it says Jesus left the temple, this is more than just a, a description of the fact that he went outside of the temple. 
This is the last time that Jesus ever entered the temple. And so there appears to be symbolism in this. Jesus is now abandoning the temple and everything that it stands for. He's saying Judaism and its laws and its attempt to define righteousness by keeping God's law and in its rejection of me, I am abandoning it. I am God. Okay? And so then the disciples are there, you know, they're they're all magnifying and you know, they're all just impressed with how beautiful the temple was. And Jesus says, uh-uh, this thing is not going to change. This thing is going down. So what's important for us to know, we don't, we don't live in that day, but at that time, that was the greatest architectural wonder in the entire Middle East. The temple was not just your average building. It wasn't just a pretty church. It was like the pinnacle of all architecture. And Jesus says, one day this entire thing is coming to the ground. Not even one stone will be left on another. He uses the emphatic, truly I tell you, goes on to use a double negative, and then says this, this detail about the stone, one stone not being left on another. So he's making clear that while the temple was a, for sure a wonderful building, because of what it stood for, because it was tied to the Jews who had rejected it, the disciples should not be impressed with its beauty because it's wonderful. So, here's something I want us to, to check out a little quick. If, 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 you, if you want to, flip with me to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 3, or you can just listen. But here's, here's why this is important. This is more than just a building coming down, okay? 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. This is what Paul says to the church at Corinth. Okay, so he's speaking to Christians, the believers, the church at Corinth. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. I love this stuff. The temple is coming down because it's no longer needed. Here's the, here's the point we're supposed to take away from these verses. What we're seeing here in this pronouncement, this prophecy of the temple coming down, is that the locus of God's mission and his presence is transitioning from the Jews and their temple to Jesus and his church. This is a massive, massive theological change. No longer is God going to be found in the temple of the Jews. He is now found in the person of Jesus and by extension, as he sends his spirit into the church, in you and me, those who are believers. Game changer. When Jesus died on the cross, if you read, I forget what gospel it is, I didn't prepare this, but I thought that as I was reading that. It says that he tore the veil between the two. You know, there's a veil between the, the most holy place that only the high priest could go in with a rope tied around his leg, so in case he died in there, Nobody else would die when they went in and did Jesus tore that veil in two and brought the presence and power of God out of the physical building of the temple into his church by sending his spirit. And so this is a huge change for mission, God's mission. Up until this point, he desired for his nation of Israel to be his vehicle through which his blessing would travel to the world. And what Jesus comes to do is say, hey, I'm going to bring in the Gentiles into this 
And there's no longer going to be a distinction between God's people and those other people. It's going to come down to who Jesus is and how people respond to him. And that is awesome news because you and I are beneficiaries. Okay? So, the locus of God's mission will move from the Jews and the temple to Jesus and his church. And here's what I just want to be briefly say. In the AD 70, so not even 50 years or so later, Jesus' word was fulfilled. Jerusalem was completely taken out, and the temple was wiped off the map. It, it actually did happen. No longer, it really, honestly, no longer truly necessary. Okay, so let's look at verses 3 through 8. So Matthew 24, 3 says this. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming? And of the close of the age. Basically, like, God, Jesus, when is this going to happen? And what's going to be the sign of all of this? Two questions. When and what's the sign? And Jesus answered them in verse 4 See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So they, they set out in verse 3, they've left the temple, they're, they're walking past the temple in verse 3, they're continuing across to the Kidron Valley, and they climb the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and I've never been to Jerusalem, for those of you who have been there, and, and that surrounding area, they, they, you probably know that this is a site where you would have a great view of the temple. Jesus was always an opportunistic teacher. He was really big on taking account of where he was and bringing in all kinds of theological insights and little amazing truth. And so as they're up there, they see, they're, they're in the, the, you know, the Mount of Olives, and this is a place that is, is full of overtones as the place of the Messiah is coming to judge his enemies. Let me see if I can find this real quick. Um, sorry, I should have wiped my life. I couldn't find my little, little sticky tab that I like to use. And Zechariah is one that's kind of hard to find. 861 in my Bible. In Zechariah 14, 4, it says this. This is, this is kind of the background to the the, uh, the place where they are. In Zechariah 14, 4, it says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move north and the other half south. So they're impressed with the temple. Jesus is looking at the Mount of Olives going, You guys have no idea. You have no idea. So Jesus again, he, he, their questions once again were, when is this going to happen and what's the sign? Right? When and what's the sign? Jesus takes the second question first. I love how he often fucking ignores the thing that we care about because he knows it's not going to be. And so but before describing the destruction of the temple itself, he warns again, over here, this, false signs. These are false signs. Things that some would claim would prove that the end is near, even when it is not. 
What did he say? This is but the beginning of the birth pains. The beginning. So, here's the thing. We don't need to think of this passage as simply a demonstration of Jesus' power to predict the future. Jesus is giving information to his disciples so that they have prophecies to help them. These are designed to help them. And so, Jesus is more concerned with what will happen than when it will happen. Okay? And we kind of live in a day now where it's not a real big deal to try to predict Christ's return and the day. You know, you still have some bloggers out there who do that. Carol Camping and those guys who put the billboards up about three or four years ago. But let me tell you this. In the Bible, and I don't have time to walk through it, but in this very chapter in Matthew 24, Jesus says that no one knows the hour when he's going to return except for the Father. Even Jesus himself does not know at that point what he says. And then he says it could come at any moment and it will come when you least expect it. So here's something just to put your back pocket. It is useless to try to predict the hour when you will come. The Bible never tells you to do that. It is a waste of your time, so do not even bother. Okay? Stick to what you do know and stick to what is clear and let that be what you hang your hat Okay? So Let's walk through some of this. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Okay, listen. He's, he's, he's giving a warning in these passages. Verse 5. For many, many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. These are people who are claiming to be the Messiah. David Koresh, Waco, that's what he's talking about. Okay, people like that. The dudes who drank all the Kool-Aid and waited for the starship, that's who he's talking about. Okay, and they will lead many astray. Many so this is not a small deal. This is not a small thing. And what he's, what he's talking about is really what, what Jeremiah referred to in the Old Testament reading that Cody read for us earlier. So back in Jeremiah's day, there were false prophets. <coughs> Jesus is saying, between now and when I come back, there's going to be a lot of people who claim to be me. And they're going to tell you a bunch of bogus stuff. So be careful. Okay, in Jeremiah 14, what does it say? It says, Then I said, Oh Lord God, behold the prophet and say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine. So false prophets like to say that things are not going to get bad. But I will give you a sure peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and a deceit of their own mind. Okay? We live in a day when Jesus said there will be many people who come to Jesus' back. So you need to be very, very careful that anybody that you ever listen to claims to teach the Word of God, including your pastor. So, always, always double check everything that leaves my mouth. I am just as capable as anybody else of speaking something that's not true. Now, I hope to God that I don't do that. But it is very, very important that we know God's Word. And we line up everything that we ever hear with what we see. Okay? Jesus warning to us. Look at verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Okay? We live in an era of wars and rumors of wars. We, we've seen this. This, is, this describes our world. But what does Jesus say? He says, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. So what that lets us know is all of the stuff that we see in our world, including ISIS, okay? I hate to reference that right now. But including that, Jesus says it must 
take place. What that means, translation, it is part of God's divine will. His point. I'm not saying that those people are doing what God desires. I'm not saying that it's part of God's ultimate plan. They are in their sin, doing things that are ugly and completely not blessed by the name of God, by the person of God. But God will use this to accomplish His purpose. Okay? So, Jesus is telling us that we should not let ourselves be caught up in the general disappointment. We are to be sure that we are not gripped by panic that will take a firm hold on other people. It's kind of winding down right now. We've been living about three or four weeks now in an age, or you know, in a situation where our city has been full of panic over the two months. And thank God, my fam is recovered, and hopefully this other nurse, Amber, is on her way to recover. But here's something that I love being able to see: is I saw some of you and some of my other friends who are believers be able to be rocks and calm presences in the middle of all the chaos that we have. Jesus is calling us to stay calm and to recognize that this stuff that we see around us that's ugly, <coughs> awful. Not a surprise to our God. We don't have to be afraid. He's still on his throne and he's still going to accomplish his purpose. And also, what he says here says, but the end is not yet. The wars and all of these rumors of wars, they don't mean that the end of all things is here. The end is not yet. So, the effect of all of these, these verses we've, we've been reading. Here really is that not it's not supposed to concur enthusiasm for Christ's return, although we're supposed to, to be enthusiastic about that. We're called to pray that he would come quickly. But that's not what this verse is talking about. These verses here are warning against false claimants, people who come and try to say that they are the Messiah and try to tell us what is and is to come. And it is to warn us against an expectation of a premature return based on this construed side. Verse 7 For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. We live in a day of, of famines and earthquakes. We see that stuff. We see natural disasters ripping our world apart. But these are all the beginning of the birth cycle. That's what verse 8 says. So when you see all of this horrible stuff when you turn on the news, what many people will try to tell you is that means Jesus is coming tomorrow. They don't know that. And it doesn't mean that. It means he could come tomorrow, but it doesn't mean he is. It's the beginning of the birth pain. This is all still the beginning part. Okay, look at verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because all this this will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, so I missed my point. I meant to, to give you a point for verses 3 through 8. So, first of all, the locus of God's mission is moving from the temple and the people of Israel to Jesus and his church. That's point one. What we see in verse 3 through 8, as far as this period between Christ's ascension and his return, is that there will be evil and suffering throughout. You're like, 
Wow, Pastor, how long did you think of that? <laughs> That's what we see here. Very simple. This age, all of it, from Jesus' day, we saw it even with the disciples. Read the book of Acts, and we're going through with the fire. By chapter 4 or 5, they're already being persecuted and suffering. There's already all this stuff happening. But in verses 3 through 8, it's telling us that there will be evil and suffering throughout the world. Now, we flip to, to verse 9, what we just read. What did Jesus say? He says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. He's telling his disciples that you're going to go. You're going to go through all kinds of horrible stuff. You are going to die for me. And so what this means is that not, not that all Christians will be killed, but that some of us certainly will for the sake of the gospel. We have friends and brothers and sisters around the world who this very day will give their life so that the gospel will God predicted it. Jesus predicted it. Way back when. And it's been happening throughout all of history. And what Jesus' point here is you're living in the midst of an evil world, a world that hates me and hates my father, and you are in me, and you are my father's children. So if they hate us for who we are, they're going to hate you for who you are. Not for what you do. You can do everything right, and you're still going to be hated because you're a part of me. Doesn't die with the prosperity gospel that you'll get when you turn on your A guy in Houston doesn't preach this. Now, something I want to point out, just, just as an aside, Another reason why it's not fruitful to try to predict the when of one of the step will happen is that the word, the word that is translated then in this passage could mean after, at that time, or simply therefore. It's pretty elastic. And we don't know exactly what all is, it is intended with each verse, so with each, with each use of it. So you could try to read these verses and be like, okay, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, Jesus is coming back. So, this has already happened, he's coming back right now. And that's not the purpose of this text. The purpose of this text is to tell us what is going to happen between his ascension and return, not when he will return. And so, verse 10, let's look back at that. So after he says, you're going to die, some of you are going to die for me, verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. This evil and suffering that we see that's in the world, unfortunately, Jesus is saying, it's going to be in the church. <laughs> people who gather in my name, people who claim to be my children, their jersey has my name on the back, they're going to devour one another and betray one another. It's going to get ugly. He says, many will fall away. That means people who claim the name of Jesus will, will no longer do that. I have two really, really good friends. You've heard me reference them before. Two really good friends. One of them grew up with me. His dad was on staff at my dad's church. He got I have another friend who's a graduate of GTS, got a counseling degree, has not been in church in five years. Does not give a rip about it. So this stuff is true. We've all seen it. It's true. Verse 11. 
and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. These are different than the ones up above who claim to be Jesus. These are just people who get up on soapboxes and have radio shows and blogs and websites and they just fill the internet, fill the TVs, fill our world with absolute fun. Fake, false, untrue stuff. And then Jesus says this, and because lawlessness will be increased, basically because people will no longer live according to my word, the love of many will grow cold. Because people forget who I am, forget what is true, their love for me, their love for God, their love for one another will What that means to me is we need to watch our doctrine because our doctrine very, very, very intensely determines how we live. Really important to me. Really important that we know the truth. Because like I said, Jesus said, the truth will set you Freedom looks like loving God. Now look at verse 13. Finally, we get some good news. Finally. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So verse 13 says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Not all of those who claim to know me, not all of those who claim to follow me, but the one who endures to the end. Only those who endure are saved. So part of the effect of this ugly, nasty, evil, and suffering that's not just in the world but in the church is to purify the church. To get rid of those who are would-be disciples who profess faith in Christ and purify for himself a body who are true disciples and really do follow Jesus. So saving faith, real faith, is not defined by a firm declaration. Plenty of people can be loud and obnoxious about how real their faith is. And it's not even a well-intentioned beginning. Real faith is marked by endurance. Real faith is marked by endurance. That's a sober word that we all need to hear. We need to be careful. If you don't know what's coming around the bend in your life, you don't know where you're going to be in five years. Just because you have a faith that's intact today doesn't mean it's going to be easy to keep that intact. Now, let me just say, those who are believers, God has us in the palm of his hand. Real believers are secure. Our faith is unchanging. You can't be regenerate and then become unregenerate. So, my point is not that you can lose your salvation. My point is that you can think you're saved and not. Very different. Very different. Okay? Now, something I want to say about this is that let me, let me close this section out a little bit. Sorry, didn't. So, verse 9 through 13. What I believe Jesus is saying is that not only will the evil that, that and the suffering that, I, that he's talking about exist throughout the world, his disciples and the church will experience evil and suffering. ISIS will 
Southeast Asia fulfillment goes. Okay? He's not flying under God's radar. He's not asleep. He's not taking a nap. Like, uh, what's his name? Elijah and the prophets of Baal. He's not relieving himself. Our God is not aloof. He knows. He's sitting on his throne. He's waiting for the moment. He's waiting to do it all. Evil and suffering is a part of life. But those who endure to the end will be saved. Now, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end of the Regardless of the fact that things are going to be ugly, that there's going to be just rampant evil and suffering both in the world and in the church, None of this means that the gospel of the kingdom is not preached, or that its saving message does not spread. God's mission marches on, even though we think that it might not. Even though we see stuff that's to the contrary of what we desire, his mission is being accomplished. It will be accomplished. Despite persecution, and actually often because of it, right? The good news is preached as a testimony to all nations. If God can work redemption and bring life to the world through the death of his son, God can bring redemption and life to the nations through the death of his son. That's what he's getting at here. Is that even though this stuff is nasty, even though it's just horrific, it will be actually the very means by which the gospel goes forth to some extent. So I want to point out a couple of things. Jesus is not saying in this verse that every individual on earth will hear the gospel. And he's not even certainly not saying that everybody who hears it will respond appropriately. But what I believe he is saying here is that the gospel, the message of the kingdom, will be proclaimed throughout the known world. And another way I would put that is that to representative areas and people groups across the globe. It may not go to every single person, but every ethnic people group will have a chance to receive the gospel. So, the good news, the gospel, the gospel means good news, right? It's not real common in the Bible for us to see the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. You usually hear the gospel of grace, the gospel of peace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Matthew refers to it as the gospel of the kingdom because the kingdom is good news. And the kingdom is God's rule and reign through Christ eternally. God's rule and reign through Christ. And so Matthew says that this gospel of the kingdom, the good news that Christ Reign, and God reigns through Jesus is going to travel throughout the world into all the world. And Cody read our New Testament reading, basically highlighting two things. One, in order for people to hear the gospel, we got to send it, right? We got to send priests out into the world. But then also at the end of his, his passage in Romans 10 18, it said this. But I asked, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Okay? I hit this quickly because 
A lot of people like to use Matthew 24:14 as this like bargaining chip and this like cattle prod to try to get the church to the nation, as if Jesus is like manipulated by us finally getting his job. They kind of use this text as a fruit text, as if like, okay, now if we will just send out people to the unreached people groups, then all of a sudden, immediately, Jesus will come back, as if he plays on our time. That's not what this verse is talking about. And in light of Romans 10, it says that the gospel has already traveled. And so, if you think about it, if Jesus told his followers, and you have to look at the rest of Matthew 24, but he said that, that this generation will not pass away until these things come to pass. And so what that means is that, at least potentially, in every generation, Christ could return. And so, I believe we could have to live with some tension Matthew 24, 14 is telling us two things. One, it's telling us that before Christ comes back, the gospel is going to go to all these ethnic people. But if in the context of the rest of Matthew, it's also telling us that could happen in any era, in any age. And so I don't know what to do with that. I'm not trying to wiggle out of that. I'm just saying, Jesus is not bound. God is not bound by some understanding that we have of one verse in his mind. So let's not think that this verse is like, oh, okay, well, as soon as we get this gospel, there it is. Not like we're put in the coin of sending the gospel to the nation, to the you know, people group, and then all of a sudden, I'll talk right. But he does say that before I come back, this is going to happen. And he told his followers in his day, I could come back in your generation. So I don't know what that means. We just got to live with the Study it, look at it, realize that more importantly than the land is what we do. Okay? Now, I'm going to have to skip some stuff, but I want to talk about something real quick. Now, while, while this text is not meant to be a cattle prod to try to get us out of our seats and the Southeast Asia, that's not the point of it. It does make sense, and it is God's heart that everybody across the world would have an opportunity to hear the gospel. Okay? He wants the unreached people for, to come to him. He wants worshipers from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And according to Revelation, he's going to have them. So, here's the deal I pulled up some stats. I want to talk about unreached people. Before I do that, let me define A people group, according to the Joshua Project website, which is kind of, they're the, the ones who are really, you know, they've done a lot of research on this stuff. A people group is a significantly large grouping of individuals who perceive themselves to have a common affinity with one another. Listen to this. For evangelization purposes, a people group is the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church planning movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. Okay? That's a people group. An unreached or least reached people is a people group among which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize this people. So an unreached people group is a group that basically does not have adequate access to the gospel. Okay? Simple, simple definition. You want to know how many unreached people groups there are across the world? 
We have 7.1 billion people on our planet. I thought it was six. I guess we just really broke. 7.1 billion people in our world. Three billion of them are under. Three billion. Forty-two point three percent of our world does not have an adequate. They do not have adequate access to the gospel. That's two. Basically, 2.998, 3 billion souls that if they died today would have lived and died never hearing what we hear and preach every single Sunday. Those aren't statistics. Those are people who, unless they have an opportunity to hear the gospel, will spend eternity apart from God. Our motivation to reach these people, not to manipulate our Savior. Our motivation to reach these people, that we have a Savior who is worthy of worship on every single one God's mission is not about. Just getting this stuff out there and doing a job. God's mission is about inviting people to see and hear the beauty of Jesus and recognize that He is the true King and that He will reign forever. And that if they do not recognize that, they will not be free. So, what do we do with all of this? It's all there in front of us. What do we do with this? First of all, according to this passage, Jesus gives us three applications. I'm going to walk through them briefly, and then we'll get to the, the last one that I'm going to talk about. In verse 4, Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray. Translation, watch out. Okay? What are we supposed to do in light of this? Watch out. Verse 6. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Stay calm. Second. Watch out, stay home. Then jump down to read the verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So I would say, borrowing from the British poster for World War II, watch out, keep calm, and carry on. That's our calling in life, in the midst of all the craziness, in the midst of evil and suffering. Watch out, keep calm, and carry on. Don't get caught up in trying to predict when he's coming back. Realize that there are going to be some people who try to tell you that he, they're already there, that, it, that for him he's already here, or other fake things. Things are going to get crazy. Everybody else is going to be spinning out. Stay calm. Be calm. And endure. Carry on. So that, those are our, our applications right out of the text. Then the last thing I would say is if God's gospel of his kingdom is going to travel throughout the entire world to every nation. The invitation to you and me today is to join God in That's our call. It will be proclaimed as a testimony. So, our job is not to go out and to save anybody. Our job is to go and say, Jesus saves. 
Our job, our job is to go out and to proclaim to the nations that Christ died for their sins, was buried and rose again, and is coming back. That's our, our, our call. So how do we join God in doing this? I borrow these from the Joshua Project site. These are really good. Let me give you six different ways you can do that. Okay? First of all, learn. You can learn. Familiarize yourself with the reality of what we're living in. Don't just stop at knowing that 42% of our world doesn't know Jesus and has no access to the gospel. Go learn about it. Go figure out like where where do these people live? How can we possibly get the gospel to them? So learn about it. Okay? That's the first thing. I think knowledge makes us aware, and God can use that to begin to build compassion and empathy in our hearts. Okay? The second thing we can do is pray. Pray that God would accomplish this task, that He would use us and use other people to meet this challenge, okay? Learn, we can pray. Then third, go. Here's something I want to challenge with. I think most of us, our, our default position when it comes to the idea of possibly going to take the gospel to the world is why in the world would God call me to go do that? Our question that we begin with is why should I do that? Why would God want me to do that? I think according to the scripture, the more appropriate question is, why in the world am I still here in America? Why do I feel entitled to stay? That's the question to ask. Not why should I go, it's why, how can I know that God definitively wants me to stay? Okay? What's that on the that's, that's a game changer. Number four, another way we can join God in this, in this gospel of the kingdom going to the world is to send. To be involved in being people who send people to the nations. And we do that. Our church says that. So this one, you can be, take comfort knowing that you're a part of this. When you give your money to, the, to God, when you place it in the offering plate, 10% of that has sent the, the gospel to the nation through our missions. And you can also be a part of Hopefully, sending more people out. Hopefully, we have more people. I mean, we're so close to BTS. Hopefully, some of our students that come here by the end of their graduation, God has completely changed their future, taken their plan that they mapped out that I had as an 18 year old, and said, you know what? I don't really want you to be 2.1 kids in a fixed thing. I want you in Southeast Asia. So, be a part of sending. Now, here's two more. Uh, the fifth one would be we can welcome. Welcome in the name of the, of the gospel going throughout the whole world. And what I think that looks like is there are people that God has brought to our country. There are international students all around us, people who live on your street, who you don't even have to spend a dime to get the gospel to them. You just go across the street and knock on the door. You don't have to be like, hi, I'm Jeremiah. Can I tell you about Jesus? We can knock, have a normal conversation, build a relationship, and pray that God will Welcome those who are already here that God has brought to us for the sake of the gospel. And then finally, the last one is we can mobilize people for the gospel going to the nations. And what that means is you be a voice, somebody who takes it, takes the calling of, of the global proclamation of the gospel as something that God puts on your heart, and then you share that with other people. Being somebody who reminds people of the unfinished task at hand. Reminds people that there are people who are not worshiping our Savior who is worthy of worship. 
and let them know. Okay? So we can learn, we can pray, we can go. We can sin, we can welcome, we can mobilize. The real question for you today, the question to ask as you exit this building, how are you and your family going to join God in the the gospel of not tomorrow, not next year, today. How are you going to do it? In each season, it might look different. Maybe this season is learning. Next season is praying. Why do that? Doing? Maybe you're already at a season where maybe it's time to mobilize. God's already given you this passion and time to share. Maybe it's sending. Maybe it's welcoming. I don't know what part. There's six different ways to join God. And I'm not telling you that everybody has to go or everybody has to welcome. It looks different for each of us. But ask the question. This is a question that is not worth ignoring. Okay. It might look different at each stage of your, of your life. But God wants us to join in. I'm running out of time. <laughs> so I've got, I've got a quote. I wanted to share some other stuff. I'll, I'll wrap up. I just want to say how encouraging it is that even though our world is a mess, even though it will continue to be a mess, not just for those who don't know Jesus, but for us, if we endure, we will be saved, and his gospel will go forth. His mission will be accomplished in your life. We can forget, trying to predict the future, get our eyes on Jesus, remind ourselves that what he's calling us to do is be part of his gospel right now. Father, thank you for